Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you for, your, for the opportunity that you give us one day in seven to study your word in a corporate sense. I guess not sense, and corporately with everyone here. And we thank you for that. We thank you that we can interact, that we can engage in the word of God in such a way that we, we want to know it better. We want to grasp at its meaning so that we might apply it to our lives. And we can do none of that without the work of your spirit in our hearts. And so we pray that your spirit would do the work this day, that we would have a wonderful time of, of learning and of growing in our desire to love you more and more as you reveal more and more to us on how to love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. A couple of things. I proofed this thing seven or eight times, and I found a, uh, an error today. I'm like, oh. The, it says, Old Testament things, themes, class 18. No, it's not. It's class 20. So if you're like me and you're a little bit crazy about that stuff, um, you could put the, word, or the number 20 above 18, because that's where we are at. And we are in the book of Ecclesiastes. Where is Gary? Is Gary here? Where did, what happened to our brother Gary? I don't see him. Interesting. Got it. Because um, the reason I was looking for Gary was because it, this particular chapter, it's interesting. We just rotate through um, as far as pastors teaching this. And I happen to keep getting uh, Richard P. Belcher, uh, Jr. And so I really like uh, what he does. I like him because he's gutsy. Sometimes he goes at, he knows the uh, language, and sometimes he goes at the word. Um, really, in a, in a wonderfully refreshing way, he bases it on the word base, instead of basing it necessarily on what somebody else said. Certainly, he will confirm it that way, but he first and foremost does it himself. So, yay to, uh, to God for giving Richard P. Belcher Jr. the, the, the desire and the, and the skill to do that. So, let's take a look at the book of Ecclesiastes. You'll see here on the sheet, if it's in red, excuse me, if it's in blue font, that means I'm going to be looking for someone to uh, read that particular section. Where's uh, Wayne? Is Wayne still? There you are. Wayne, can I give you this? And then when we get to a blue font, you can hand the microphone to somebody to read that particular. We have three areas we're going to read today. I think it's three. Yeah, there is three. They're not long areas, but they're wonderful areas. Okay, so let's look at the author. The author is possibly Solomon. Maybe many of you have thought by reading it, you're saying, well, it's starts off with Solomon. It says it seems to say it's Solomon, so it must be Solomon. Well, let's take a look at this. Uh, let's see why that would be true. The description of the author as the son of David, king in Jerusalem, as stated in 1.1, and the statement, I have been king over Israel in Jerusalem in 1.12, would support that Solomon's the author. I mean, that's pretty plain text right there. And then point number two, the way the author describes his search in chapter 2 sets forth opportunities and activities available only to a king like Solomon. He has access to things that most kings, even in their kingship, doesn't have it because Solomon was the greatest of kings as far as his, his wisdom and, and the, the, the continuation of the growth of the kingdom itself was at its, its golden era. He, he uh, it deals with unrivaled wisdom, wealth in abundance, Tremendous retinue of servants, opportunities for carnal pleasure, and extensive building activities, all of which we know are tied to Solomon. So you we're like, okay, why is this even a question? This certainly sounds like a Solomon. 
And then there's the this, this second position, that it's an unknown author, possibly a later Israel, Israelite king or prophet. I mentioned to you last time I taught that after taking the doctrine of the word um, class at my seminary, I do believe and hold to the belief that all of Scripture is either in the Old Testament authored by a prophet, someone who speaks under the authority of God, and or it, uh, an apostle in the New Testament, somebody who has... Uh, either an apostle or an apostle representative because of their interaction with the apostle um, is what we see in the New Testament. So we see institutions of God's revelation being given to men, uh, meaning that God works through either pro uh, the prophets or the apostles, and it certainly gives us a better understanding of the foundation of the church. So then we continue on, then let's look at this, this, this possible other uh, option. Uh, under point number one, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were, all who were over Jerusalem before me in 116. Well, that's a problem. I mean, that's, that's kind of out of context because few reigned before Solomon. You got Saul, the, the king that uh, the people put forward and said, hey, he looks great. This guy looks like all the other kings. This is our guy. And God said, okay, you want that one? And Saul was a disaster. And then you have David, and then you have Solomon. So really, all the other kings that came before him, he's the greatest. So something seems like that doesn't line up. Um, one of the things that the, uh, someone put forth is this. One of the commentators said, this could be a literary device of association used to communicate a solemn-like persona. And we have that happening sometimes where people will take the position of someone earlier than them in order to convey a message. They're, they're, they're trying to get you to think like Solomon without being the person of Solomon. So you're trying to get you to remember things about it. And then it's in point number two there. The author does not speak as a king throughout the whole book. And let's look at, uh, it says under point A there in, in verse 4, 3, it says this, uh, chapter 4, verse 3. The author admits, excuse me, the author laments oppression, which could be odd for a king. Certainly it's would not fit Solomon's time. Solomon's the golden age. If there was any oppression, it was, on, it was Solomon's doing. Yeah, um, then we continue on in 5, 8 through 9. There are, yeah. <laughs> uh, he sees Grandpa up here. Uh, in uh, chapter 5, verses 8 through 9, there are protests against the king and certain royal policies. Well, a king wouldn't be protesting a king, so we've got conflict there. Um, and then you have in 1020, the verse assumes that the king is, is a suspicious bully. Is, is, I'm using Richard P. Belcher's words, suggesting that the author is someone other than a king. So let's first, well, let me, let me explain before we read. I want to explain to you that what Belcher and others do so well. Um, Belcher was the first source that I saw this in. I've seen it in other sources, but I, I was... I was caught. Uh, I, I, I did not expect Belcher to hold this position, and I was thrilled because I had seen this position before. Um, the name of the, uh, you're going to see in your Bible, if you have an ESV, it's going to be referred to as the preacher. That word in Hebrew is, and you can see it on your page, is Kohelet. Kohelet. <clears throat> and uh, it speaks of, if you want to know what it means in Hebrew, it can be a, a speaker, a teacher, a preacher. He is the, oftentimes referred to as the collector of sentences. So it's one who collects truth and then teaches on the truth. That's important. 
because that's not Solomon. Uh, then we have, uh, uh, let's see, the collector of sentences of the assembly. He is a character in the book and not an author of the book. Oh, that's fascinating. Could this Kohelet, this teacher or preacher, be a character in the book and not actually be the author? In other words, he's, he's someone the author is allowing to play a role into unfolding this, this truth of Ecclesiastes, but the author gets the right to open the, the book with uh, uh, a prologue and then close the book with an epilogue. So let's listen to what I believe uh, uh, Richard Belcher is correct on. Let's listen to the author's in opening statements in the uh, prologue. And who would like to read uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11? You got it. The words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea does not fill, is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has it been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. So if you hold to this position, <clears throat> then you see that when he opens up with vanity of vanities, which, by the way, we're going to talk about that word, I think we're going to, by way of looking at it in the Hebrew, you're going to walk away with a much better understanding of vanity of vanities. What that, what that is getting, what is that word vanity that the English tries to get? It's a great attempt on, by the English, but there's so much packed in that that it's not fair to that one word to describe what's going on here. Um, so what the, the author is doing in the prologue is he's announcing what the belief or the standing or the position of the preacher is. You notice that the preacher is talked of in third person there. Notice how it says, vanity of vanity, says the preacher. In other words, he's letting us know this is what the, the, the preacher or the teacher's stance is. And then so he introduces it to us in the form of poetry. You'll notice how it's changed its text look in your Bible. And then he's going to allow Kohelet or Kohelet um, to tell his position. And then at the very end, in the epilogue, he's going to come back and say, this is true, but don't forget this as well. So that's going to be fascinating for us to take a look at and, and see if you agree with that particular layout of the book. 
So let's get into the date. The date is possibly between some, somewhere between the 5th and 3rd century BC. So this is after the exile, after they had been exiled um, and returned. <clears throat> uh, with the emphasis that it is post-exilic writing, the genre, I'm quoting uh, uh, Belcher here, it says this, Ecclesiastes fits no single genre category from the ancient Near East neatly. In other words, there's a ton of different, of, of the genres, and even, there's three main genres, and they are uh, narrative, poetry, and discourse. Well, we can get narrative at story. Poetry, we get that as using imagery to convey what it wants to convey. And discourse is typically what you see, like in the book of Ephesians or something. It's, it's instruction-based. Uh, someone's trying to teach us something. So you can see that there's a, a lot of that overlap already going. I mean, we started the book with poetry, and we're going to see a lot of it. That's why it doesn't fit neatly into call it one, just one type of genre is what he's getting at. Okay. So the structure again and the outline, I've, I've alluded to the prologue and the epilogue. The prologue is the exploration of the nature of the world by the author in verses 1, 1 through 11. And then Kohelet's autobiography, that's a story about his own life, um, verses 1, 12 through 12, 7. The key is 12, 7. Do not make the break at 12, 8. You will miss something. And if you look at 12, we're going to look at 12, 8. 12.8 does the same thing that 12.1 did. It talks about the preacher in a third, sense, in a third person. Um, and so the break, I don't believe, should be at 12, uh, in your Bible, should be at 12.8. It should have been at 12.7 at the end of that paragraph. And then we, uh, uh, underneath Kohelet's autobiography, or Kohelet's, I keep saying and uh, emphasizing the wrong vowel there, the search for meaning under the sun in verses, chapter 1, uh, verse 12, through chapter 6, verse 12, and then you have in the second part of that, or B, human limitation concerning knowledge from 7.1 all the way to 12.7. And then uh, you have the epilogue, the evaluation. I think Belcher does a great uh, uh, service to us by using that word, the evaluation of the work by the author. So the author is going to come back into play. I'm suggesting that the author is a prophet and it is going to now give us some context on what Kohelet has just revealed to us. So let's take a look at the different approaches to Ecclesiastes. <clears throat> let's go ahead and read um, chapter 8, verses 11 through 15. Chapter 8, verses 11 through 15. Anybody want to read? What do we have here? We got, it looks like, uh, actually, we have Glenda volunteering. I've got to just tell, look at Wayne to see who we got rather than asking. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this is also vanity. And I command, commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun, but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him 
in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. All right, so in the first part of the verses, it seems to say one thing, and then he comes back at the latter part of that reading, and he, and he changes it all around and goes, well, it works both ways. And so how can it work both ways? Doesn't God's principle of righteousness stand? And why do we see exceptions to this and a lot of exceptions to this in people's lives? So let's look at the header. The, uh, well, let me first um, read right after that. I've got a little bit of text there from Richard. It says this. This text seems to, be, to outright contradict itself regarding the, whether the righteous and the wicked get their just rewards. The, the key is the term under the sun. It's used a ton. We have to understand what that is. We'll talk about that in a little bit. That way, uh, that way, excuse me, the way that commentators handle the tension in these verses offers a small window into how they understand the message of the book as a whole. So as you understand this tension of, wait, life's supposed to work this way, but life works this way, you will have commentators that fall into this group and commentators that fall into that group. You have fallen into a group and you didn't know it. I'm trying to, exp- to expose you to a group that you may never have been aware of before. So let's first take a look at the heterodox uh, Kohelet, or Kohelet. This is the, the people who are in op- opposition of the orthodox way. That's all heterodox is getting at here in the, in the wording. Kohelet, instead of just being the teacher within the book, is also the author. So he, doesn't, he sees in, in this way of looking at it, Kohelet is both author and a character. He's the teacher. He rejected the claim that wisdom could secure one's existence and thus provided negative comments. So you've got the original writing by uh, Kohelet as, as the author. Then you have a first redactor. So now it's being touched by somebody else. When we've learned that is not unbiblical. God used men to, to edit his word under the inspired authority of God. So this, this one says, oh, well, if, that, if we agree that that takes place, then this is what happens. So they say this then. A first redactor or editor admired the thinking of Kohelet and did not edit any portion of that content. However, a second editor, so now it's being touched again, according to this theory or this position, was disturbed by Kohelet's thinking and added in the orthodox position. So that this editor brought that in to say, well, wow, 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 this isn't, this, we can't have this negative perspective. We've got to have a little bit of positive. So they would say, disregard the positive. That's somebody else touching that and they shouldn't have done it. So now let's look at the orthodox Kohelet or Kohelet. Uh, recognizing a conflict between the positive and the negative statements, this position sees the positive statements taking precedence over the negative statements. And then one of the re- theologians that uh, uh, Belcher um, re- um, made note of, that I recognize, he made note of like four guys, was Bruce Waltke. I've read some of Bruce Waltke, and I've, I've agreed with him on a number of occasions. I've disagreed with him on some occasions. Um, but he holds this position. So when you come to the negative, you're supposed to downplay the negative in the, orth- in the orthodox and realize that, or, or another way of saying it, is to raise up the teaching of what is positive or orthodox according to the principles laid out in Proverbs. Proverbs gives us an idea of how things are supposed to run in the world based on God's righteousness, but and they don't always because God allows the sinfulness of man to hinder that track of righteousness. So then there's this, and this is obviously what you could tell, this is where I hold to, the struggling Kohelet. This view sees the tension expressed by Kohelet to stand without resolution. 
meaning he's going back and forth. That's what that, me- that sentence means. Both Tremper Longman and Michael Fox recognize that a key element to Kohelet's thinking is the unresolved tension in this thought. There's a lot of tension in Christianity, so I can appreciate when they're coming at this from that position. And so we continue on. Uh, in the final analysis, the best approach to the, to the, excuse me, is to understand that Kohelet does not subordinate the anomalies, those are the exceptions I was using, I was referring to uh, earlier, the anomalies of life and the breakdown of the principle of retribution to a higher principle for the sake of resolution. He's getting a little wordy. He's just saying, look, there's, there's a tension there. Don't try and solve the tension. The reality is we live in a world that doesn't function off complete righteousness as we will know it upon Christ's return. Christ allows sin, and if you're a Christian, even to be used for your good, not that you should go out and do it, but someone else's sin against you, to be used for your good, according to Romans 8, 28 and 29, because it sanctifies you and me. So God is not subverting all sin. That happens when he comes back again. So there's tension in this life. How come the principles of Proverbs don't work out all the time? That's not always the track that goes on in my life, is what he's getting at. The troubles of life so dominate his, or Kohelet's, thinking that he calls into question traditional thinking. The author of the epilogue, however, so remember we have an author different than the teacher. The author of the epilogue, however, subverts Kohelet when he brings in the commands and secrets, secret judgments of God. He's, he's basically what uh, Belcher is, and this view is, is saying is, look, this tension is going to get resolved. We have a God who sees it all. There is nothing out of his sight. He is a just God. You don't need to worry about judgment. You need to focus on life itself. And that's what Kohelet is going to teach us a little bit about. Okay, so let's flip the page here. You'll see that um, on your third page, because I've got it stapled there, is I've got the, the little road map, if you will. If you want to look at that, we're not going to go over that today. Uh, but it is kind of neat and helpful um, on uh, that particular poster. Because, yeah, again, for those of us who are visual, you can go, oh, okay, I see what's going on. So let's t- take a look back now at the back side of the page we were just reading. The key hermeneutic is ha- understanding the word hevel. Hevel is the word that you, every, every time you see the word vanity in Ecclesiastes, that is the Hebrew word. Let's dive in and find out what this word means in its totality beyond what we have. I don't know what you think of when you think of vanity. I think of just, you know, arrogance focused, you know, arrogantly focused on myself when I think of vanity. And that's, there's so much more in Hevel than just that. So let's take a look at it. Point number one, most Bibles translate Hevel as vanity but a single word fails to capture everything it means. Elsewhere in the Bible, it is translated as breath. And that's dealing particularly with Isaiah. In Isaiah 57, 13, it is used in a parallel to reference to, reference to the wind. So Isaiah is doing something, and he's, he talks about kind of like um, what Proverbs does. It does couplets, and Proverbs will say something, and then it'll say right underneath it another verse that, says, that tries to explain what it just said in the verse, same verse, or it says it in a different way, a little bit of a tweak, so you can understand it. That's what uh, uh, Isaiah is doing at this particular time. So he refers to um, 
the, excuse me, he's used the reference of ruach, which is wind or breath, and then he comes back and he uses um, hevel to mean breath. And so he's trying to, to give us a better picture, but we, at least we have an idea, okay, when Isaiah uses it, he doesn't use it as the word vanity, he uses it as the word breath. Okay, this word has a greater understanding. I need to understand the full context of it. So, um, most of its use in the Bible is metaphorical, meaning it's used figuratively or symbolically to describe something. In other words, it's trying to use a word to describe something else. If you hang on to that, just that word, you'll miss it. So that's how this word hevel is used, particularly in our book. Here, point number four, in, in Ecclesiastes, in other words, hevel stresses the idea of something being temporal, temporal, fleeting, or transient, like vapor, excuse me, like breath, vapor, or I like, personally, the one smoke. Because I can't oftentimes see vapor. I kind of can when, if, you know, you take a hot plate and put it on the, on the, uh, the counter and you can see the, the steam coming off. I, I suppose that would be a form of vapor. Um, but when I think of smoke, and that's where I think that the, the visual that I gave you, the, the map that I put, put as page number three is helpful. Smoke, I can sit at a campfire and I can see smoke. I can, I can see how it's there, but when I go to grab it, it's not there. I can see it, I know it's there, but I can't grasp it. And you start to hear, oh, that's what Kohelet is dealing with. That which he can see, but he can't grasp it. He's seen it go on in his life, but how do I make sense of this? I can't grasp it. It's a, it's a metaphorical grasping or a knowledge-based grasping, an intellectual. So here um, in, under 4B, it says this. It also, ta- uh, excuse me, 4A. It also takes on an incomprehensible understanding. Kohelet cannot get his head around this. Why is life this way? Kohelet struggles, under point B, to understand life with all of its exceptions. Uh, earlier, Belcher referred to it as anomalies. To larger biblical principles concerning righteousness versus wickedness and rational expectations. If I do this, rationally working through this, I should be able to have these expected consequences. And it doesn't happen that way. What's going on? I can't understand God, what God is doing in this world, why he allows these exceptions. This is what Kohelet is struggling with. And then see, thus, Hevel could also be translated as mystery or enigma. I like, the first time I ever heard the word enigma is when I was watching the Batman series. The Joker was an enigma. He couldn't figure out the guy. He talked in, or Riddler was also one. He talked in riddles. And I thought, what is that word? I had to go to, the, as a little boy, go to the Webster Dictionary and go, what is an enigma? Uh, I don't understand this. Is it just, why didn't you just call him a bad guy? Um, so an enigma is somebody who is, or, or, or uh, is somebody who's puzzling. They're ambiguous. Uh, they are inexplainable. Why do you do the things? Why don't, what? I don't. That's, that's what his enemy was like. Well, life here for the Ecclesiastes, for, the, for Kohelet, is not that it's his enemy. It's just that it's puzzling. I can't figure it out. Are you starting to hear the blessing that it is that God gave us the book of Ecclesiastes? I don't know about you, 
but I've had tragedy in my life. I have had things that did not go my way. I have had loved ones perish before I thought that they, God should take them. In my economy, they should have been here longer. How, what? Look at all the good. What, why did you do this? Why did you do that? I don't understand. We all face that. Why is my life so difficult when I look over at that person's life who's, who's this is right out of Psalm 73, who seems to be living the, the good life, and they don't follow any of God's rules, God's obedience. What's going on here, God? This is what Kohelet is dealing with. So we get to um, uh, point number five underneath key hermeneutic dealing with Hevel. In extra-biblical literature, Hevel carries the sense of something being false, futile, or empty. Now, when I say extra-biblical, that means outside of the Bible this word is used. We found this word in the artifacts, and we've read the artifacts. We've, we've, we've read the scrolls of, that have been preserved. We've seen the writings on different pottery and whatnot, and we can see there's a different definition here. But it's helpful to us. So let's take a look at this extra uh, biblical literature. It means something being false, futile, or empty, which helps us understand Kohelet's emotional sense of weariness. Certainly you get that from, from reading uh, Kohelet's uh, take on life. Weariness and somber disposition, teetering at times on despair. Gosh, this world is hard. Why does it have to be this way? That's what Ecclesiastes is trying to deal with. So some of the themes here. The main question posed by Kohelet is this. What profit is there for a person in all his labor for which he labors under the sun? What's the profit in it? Why should I do it? Is there any profit in me working hard under the sun? In, in other words, under the sun, we're going to take a look at that. Look at the note here. Under the sun is somewhat of a pragmatic perspective on life based on experience. That's huge. Kohelet primarily is looking pragmatically at life. This is how it plays out in my life. This is what I've seen. I'm old. I can look back, and you can't tell me otherwise. This is what, is, what history has shown me. This is what he's dealing with. So let's take a look at this. The goal the authors, the authors, not Kohelet's. Kohelet is a character, the author, the, the guy with the uh, prologue and the epilogue. The author's basic goal is to let the teacher, in other words, Kohelet, deconstruct all the ways we find meaning and purpose apart from God. Oh, that's helpful. In other words, he's going to look at wealth, pleasure, status, and career. You want to park your satisfaction in there? You're going to have problems. He's going to deconstruct, the Kohelet is going to deconstruct each of those, which is, the, now we're starting to hear the wisdom side of Ecclesiastes. It's good. Kohelet isn't necessarily wrong. He's incomplete. He isn't seeing things or sharing things from a perspective of God. That's the author's role. He's going to clean it up at the very end. Kohelet is giving you an idea primarily of when I look at life, based on what I've experienced and seen in life, the histories I've seen, you're not going to have what you think you're going to have when you put all your effort into whatever it is that you put all your effort in. It's going to fall short. That's the message. So, there's a, there's a so in there. So let's continue on. As we look at these themes, and, and point number one there, underneath the uh, main themes, Kohelet recognizes that even though there is no profit or advantage from labor... Because 
all of your labor ends up being either you die or it goes on to someone that benefits somebody else. There's no profit in that. That's where the, the, the lack of profit, that's what profit is getting at. No advantage from labor. There is a portion, in other words, a reward or a lot. What's my part of what I'm doing? What can I take from that this, that is positive? The, the, the portion of a lot that should be enjoyed, he's going to deal with that. This portion refers to all that one can expect in a world where human, human activity and effort do not achieve the desired results. Even though there is no profit to labor, one should enjoy the portion that does come from labor because it is all that one can expect from this life. And he's, the, I'm going to um, shift for a second. Under point number two, I'm going to use a different author. This author explained what Belcher explained in a much more concise and compressed um, way of saying it in just these three paragraphs. So I'm going to shift to her input. Uh, this is from uh, Carmen Joy Imes. She says this, the teacher of Ecclesiastes is taking a sober look at human ambition and recognizing its limits. Gosh, how many of you were told when you were little, if you just work hard, put your nose down, and just work like crazy, life will work out okay for you? Ecclesiastes is saying, yeah, no, doesn't work that way. Talk to anyone who's got gray hair. So you continue on. <clears throat> you and I are dispensable. That one hurts. People die all the time, and the, peop- and the world keeps turning without their hard work. If we lift a bucket of water out of the ocean, it does not leave a hole. Gosh, that's a great uh, picture for me. Not even a dent. I just took it out. You can't even see where I took out the bucket of water. But I took out a bucket of water because I'm holding it. Perhaps this is why retirement or prolonged illness or disability can be so unsettling. In addition to a dramatic shift in daily routines and social networks, a new question plagues us. If the world can go on without my work, then why did I work in the first place? What good did it do? Again, I, I'm telling you, as I get older, I look back at my career on the police department. I'm gone. I've been gone since 2011. Can I look back and say I made a difference? I, I'm holding the bucket, but I don't see any, any hole in the ocean out there of difference. Really? Should I, did I go on the wrong career? Did I, all that effort, did it not make sense? All the sacrifice, time away from the family? So we continue on. The teacher despairs at his inability to hang on to what he's achieved. His conclusion? Stop working for what you don't have yet. Start, and this is so key. This is so key. Start enjoying the journey. I don't know, men, how many of you have had a godly wife to share with you. Don't forget the journey. You're stressing over getting to, to, from A to B, and you're missing the joy of the journey be, between A and B. You know, I, I'm looking at this little guy over here, my grandson. Parents, it's tiring to, to raise up a child who you know is going to rebel against God and you. It's exhausting. If you are just waiting for 18 to come so you can send them out the door, you missed the teaching of Ecclesiastes. There's joy in these little terrorists and <laughs> these little rebellious ones. There is great joy. We can't miss the joy. It's this, this, this book and this understanding that I, that I was able to grasp in the last week, I am just like, man, that's the next book I want to preach on. I mean, just because it's, I, I, I miss so much. 
I've been the guy who's focused on the end too much. I want to tell people, don't do what I did. Here we go. Let's continue on. And by the way, I'm not preaching on that book next. We've got the, the, the whole Torah to go through. So let's continue on. Start enjoying the journey. If we pour all our energy into getting somewhere else, we miss the joys available to us in the present. If you thought of the book of Ecclesiastes as cynical, look again. Yes, the book contains cynicism. I thought it was all about cynicism. I wasn't sure what I should take. What's, what's, what's wisdom and what's not wisdom in here? It seems like this guy's just a doggy downer. Do I listen to anything in what he says? This is what, we're, what you're struggling with here. Let's say, uh, yes, the book contains wisdom, but also the possibility of joy. Again and again, the teacher invites us to stop and smell the roses. Don't spend your life yearning for what you don't have. Instead, enjoy what you have, al- what you have already. Being able to eat and drink and find satisfaction in our toil, this is the gift of God, according to Ecclesiastes 3.13. Wow. And then the f- last uh, paragraph of the three from this particular author. The teacher doesn't give us, give up on work. It didn't say work is bad. We know work is good because we were given the, the, the design to work in the garden before the fall. Work is certainly good. The teacher doesn't give up on work. He urges whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might. That, you know, that's God glorifying. That's out of Ecclesiastes 9.10. But since we're all, do, all going to die at some point and eventually be forgotten, and it's, I was watching something the other day, and they, uh, no, I'm reading from an author that said, do you know your great-grandparents' name or anything they did of significance? You might have, but you are the anomaly. The anomaly. It only takes a great-grandparent. That's how far back, and then you will not be forgotten. You will not be remembered again. It's like, wow. Um, but since we're all going to die and at some point eventually be forgotten, he wants us to enjoy life along the way. This is the female author talking about Kohelet, the teacher. It's not that our work doesn't matter, but the teacher says, in essence, to loosen your belt buckle and eat another helping of dessert. (laughs) I don't know if I would agree with that exactly. We are stewards over our bodies, but I do appreciate that. I might take another bite of that chocolate chip cookie. Relish what God has given. Do what you love and love what you do. Ecclesiastes 9, 7 through 10. The world does not, now this is so freeing, the world does not depend on your success. Well, you know, as a parent, I hope that's a little bit freeing. You may not be the best, you know, all successful in your parenting. Welcome to parenthood. But your family, your children's uh, well-being does not, is not based on your success in that level. You can't, you don't have to worry about that. Oh, if I don't do this just right, God's not going to make this happen. Rest in that. And then uh, this is where um, we go back. Um, oh, you know what? Did I miss? I did. Let's do this. I need someone to read uh, uh, chapter 12, verses 8 through 14. Before I get to this last paragraph, we've got to read this. Listen to how the author is going to jump in there at, eight, at 12, 8. Watch why we see it's 12, 8 that he jumps in there at. Um, go ahead. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. All right, pause right there. Do you, do you hear the third person? This is the, other, uh, this is the author jumping in now. We learned that on the, when it opened up, the author was speaking in that terminology about the, the preacher. He's doing it again right here. 
So we know the author is, is uh, teaching us. So go ahead. He's going to straighten out some things. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote the words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Let me jump in there real quick. You want to read all the books on how to get it right? You're going to miss life. You got to live it at some point. That's what he's getting at there. He's not telling you not to read books, but if you're going to spend your whole life trying to figure out life, you will have missed life. Keep going. The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Praise God. Let me uh, read the, this just because we read that last verse, let me go ahead and read just half of point number three here at the end. This is our last point. The author uses the epilogue to incorporate into the sage practical advice provided by the teacher a fuller understanding of justice that includes God's role in a world filled with injustice. That's what the author is correcting. Stop worrying. Not that you shouldn't be Christians defending against injustice, but if you're continuing, you get stuck in the why, just take, take rest in knowing God's got this. No injustice will go undealt with. God's got this. All right, we've got a couple minutes for questions. Anybody have any questions about this? PJ has a, a question or a statement. I don't know if you've heard this particular um, understanding. That's what they refer to as the struggling Kohelet uh, perspective. Yeah, and I think it fits within a consistent biblical model. I even think back to uh, the teaching. I think it, it was you teaching us through Asaph's psalm in Psalm 73. And Asaph, Asaph says, uh, but as for me, my feet have almost stumbled. My steps have nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. And it continues on with what seems to be all of that. And yet, when he goes through all his struggles with what is this life, I witness all of this. I'm envious of all the pleasures of the world and all these things that seem to be counter to what the book of Proverbs would teach us. It then says, he then ends up concluding, though, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you, which would be, to me, almost to say everything on earth is vapor or smoke or meaningless besides you. And so to me, I almost feel like um, this is like an exposition or a further taking out of what we see in Psalms frequently, which is state a truth at the beginning, talk about the struggles of life, and then state the truth at the end mm. um, and, and cap it. That's great. Thank you. Very much set up, and there's, there's a lot of parallels. Janet, you has a question? How can we be sure that it's not Solomon writing this? Um, people, especially royalty, have been known to speak of themselves in the third person. And when it comes to the epilogue, 
we do write postscripts, P.S., at the end. I want to teach you this about what I said. Or we can have written something down and later on go and read our own writing and want to add some additional wisdom to it. So how do we know that so it's not solid? ultimately, you have to decide. And I don't want you to hear that I am forcing where you land on this, whether he is both Kohelet is both the author and the teacher. I will tell you, if you look back, you'll see patterns like Lady Wisdom is a character in the book. And we have this older gentleman on the other end of life that seems to be the, the old salty guy that says, yeah, but Proverbs, you see it this way, but life happens like this. So it would be consistent. Now, that being said, Janet, I am, it, it's called the orthodox position for a reason. Okay. That to believe that it's Solomon is just fine to believe that. Okay, because I've been believing that a long time. <laughs> Absolutely. And so I don't want to come across as that can't be. I'm just giving you a perspective that I tend to hold to this other one, but that doesn't mean anything that other than I tend to hold to that one, to this one. And we can disagree and still love the wisdom. Yeah. And so, Absolutely. and use it, and use it in counseling. Uh, oh, yes, so. use it in my own life. Use it in my own life, self-counsel, first and foremost. That's good. So I'm glad you, you made sure of that. Okay, that looks like it. Let me go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I do thank you that we had an opportunity to take a look at this. I pray that uh, you will use the wisdom of Ecclesiastes to remind us to find joy in the journey and to not be so focused on the end goal that we miss out on the joy you put right before us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.